0: Welcome to episode 116 of the Women of the Military podcast. This week my guest is Ali Braza. She served in the Navy and she shared her experience in a book called Flawed but Still Worthy. She faced a number of challenges in the military including sexual harassment and assault. She also had a medical incident where they didn't listen to her and she ended up having to have her uterus removed because of a blood clot after a pregnancy and she also married her first husband and he died shortly after they got married on a deployment to Afghanistan. She faced a number of challenges in the Navy but through her experience she was able to overcome so much and she just really goes deep into her experience in her book and I'm glad that we had a chance to talk about some of the highlights of her experience today in this interview. So let's get started. listening to the women of the military podcast where we share the stories of female service members and how the military touched their lives. I'm Amanda Huffman, I'm an Air Force veteran, author of Women of the Military and a collaborative author of Brave Women Strong Faith. I am also a military spouse and mom. I created Women of the Military podcast as a place to share stories of military women past and present with the goal of finding the heart of the story while uncovering the triumphs and challenges women face while serving in the military. If you want to be encouraged by the stories of military women and be inspired to change the world, keep tuned for this latest episode of Women of the Military. Welcome to the show,
1: Allie. I'm excited to have you here. Thank you so much for having me on. I appreciate it.
0: So let's dive in with why did you decide to join the military?
1: So actually, my story isn't anything grand. I've always been like a person that does something, gets pretty good at it, and then is on to the next thing. So I graduated high school early by choice at 17 and went to medical assisting school and worked for a doctor before I could even sign my own permission slips. I mean, I wasn't even 18 yet. And then um, one day I was driving home. I had been working as a medical assistant for like six months and I saw a recruiting station and I was like, wow, like that would be fun to join the military. And it was just like a thought that entered my head. And I literally like made a U-turn, turning to the recruiting station, walked into the Navy just as like the first one I chose. And I was like, hi, I think I want to join the military. And so I was like their prime candidate because I was like, they're like, well, what job do you want to do? I'm like, anything. Like I'm up for anything. And they're like, all right, let's take your, you know. So I did my um, test right then and there signed a contract that very day and went home and was like, mom, dad, like I joined the military today. And they're like, what? (laughs) You did what? Like, yeah, no, I leave for boot camp. It was like in three months. Leave for boot camp in three months. It's going to be a blast. I joined the Navy. So no thought, just kind of on a whim.
0: Right. And you talked about that in your book. I remember you telling
1: that story about you were like, oh, look, a recruiting station. (laughs) Yeah, like literally had to hit the brakes and make a quick U-turn. It was, yeah, very spur of the moment.
0: So in that three months, did you ever have any second thoughts or did any of your family
1: try and deter you from joining the military? You know, it was kind of like a running joke in my family because I was a cheerleader since I was five. Since I could hold a pom-pom, I was a cheerleader. So my family kind of had a running joke that like, oh, who thinks that she's going to make it through boot camp? Like my family just did not understand it, nor did they necessarily think that it was going to be something that I would actually do and succeed at. But they never tried to talk me out of it. I mean, it was just kind of like, Oh, we'll see how this goes.
0: (laughs) So how did boot camp go? You went about three months after you signed up. And how did that go?
1: Yeah, so I went to Great Lakes. And they call it great mistakes. But I had a blast. I mean, I've always been a fitness guru. So it was something to where It was, I was in my element. I mean, you got told what to do, when to do it, what to wear, what not to wear, how to do your hair, you know, when to exercise, how to exercise. So for me, boot camp was A, my element. I was in my element. But B, it was very easy to me because for the first time in my life, I didn't have to overthink anything. It wasn't something to where I'm like, okay, how can I like, be the best, or outdress anyone, or you know, it was just like we're all wearing the same thing. Everyone's hair is the same way, you know. You wake up and you all you're all doing the same thing, and so um, for me, it was a great atmosphere. I thoroughly enjoyed boot camp.
0: So after boot camp, do you go to your technical school or do you go to your base?
1: Yeah. So after boot camp, we went to our technical school. I started off as a master at arms, so it was police officer. But from there, I kind of switched gears mid school and actually came out as a yeoman. A yeoman is like a secretary, basically. So I went into like the administrative part of the military. So uh, we call it A school. My A school was fun. I met a lot of great people. Again, like wasn't very intimidating or overly challenging for me. It was just kind of you know, just kind of like a, an, an ease in life. Like I felt very at ease and very like this is what I wanted to do.
0: That's awesome. So you graduated from tech school, you switched career fields at the very beginning. And what was your first assignment? Where did you go? And what
1: were you doing? So I wound up on a ship. It was called the USS Emory S land. I got assigned to, it's called like boat div. So boat division. And it was just, we were in a yard period, meaning like I reported to a ship where we weren't even like in the water. Like the, the, the ship was like on stilts. It was called dry dock. So like, here I am, I'm like, I'm going to travel the world and go on this ship. And then like, I report for duty and we're not even like in the water. So that was a shock. So we were kind of in a maintenance period and it was a huge eye-opener going to my first ship because it was like, it went from kind of like a high school feel while you're in boot camp and in A school to, okay, this is like real world. Like this is the fleet. This is the military. And I remember showing up to my ship and I called the, you know, my, um, my chief, the person in charge and let him know, cause he told me to call when I report. So, Hey, I'm reporting. And it was a weekend. So he's like, hey, when you report, don't worry about being in uniform. We're in dry dock right now. Show up in civilian clothes. It's just going to kind of be like an intro day. So I said, okay. So I show up (laughs) in wedges, in Bermuda shorts, and like this like blazer with this little like tank top thing and like my suitcase, which was a zebra printed suitcase with hot pink zippers. And I'm like rolling it. And I'm like, hey, I'm here to report for duty. And I got my ass reamed the first day in front of everyone because of A, my attire, and B, just the pure fashion in which I chose to show up to my first day on the job. So I got a pretty big eye-opener the very first day. And that's when reality sank in that like, okay this is the military. This is not cheer camp. And that's exactly what my chief told me. He said, I think you missed the bus from cheer camp and you wound up in the military. Like you need to get with it. And so, um, yeah, it was quite interesting, but my first duty station was a ship.
0: So what was it like being dry docked? And then like, what work were you guys doing? Were you doing maintenance work to get ready to go back into the water?
1: Yeah. So it was all maintenance work. We had a very, very old ship. So like even like the paint was like lead paint. So you had to wear tons of like PPE, like personal equipment. And it was a lot of everybody, no matter what your job was, everyone was doing hard labor. So like paint chipping, we were, you know, clean, lots of cleaning, like cleaning the ship down after like all the maintenance. We were just doing a complete overhaul of the ship, getting ready to like be able to deploy again. So it was hard manual labor. And I remember, you know, I was one of two females in my division. And the other female, I mean, she was with it because she'd been there for a while. She knew the difference between like all the different screwdrivers, (laughs) you know, and and they're like, Allie, you, you know, hand me a flathead. And I'm like, okay, like, what is that? You know, so lots of hard manual labor work, which I just was not used to. I mean, my family of origin, like the men were always like my brother and my dad were always out doing the yard work and the women worked inside and we cleaned the house and cooked and whatever. And then all my jobs that I'd ever held were, you know, office jobs. I worked in a lot of doctor's offices. So manual labor and tools and all those types of things were just like so foreign to me. And so it was something to where I had to like pick up on things quickly and start getting with it and learning. And I wasn't used to not being great. I mean, everything I've ever done, I've always gone at it 110%. I'm a recovering perfectionist. So that was very hard for me to be a part of something where I didn't know an apple from an orange.
0: Yeah, that sounds crazy, especially because your tech school
1: is like personnel secretary type work. And then you're like, wait, what... <laughs> what just happened? (laughs) Exactly. That's exactly was my thought process. What just happened? And where am I?
0: (laughs) So besides like working a hard manual job, did you connect with the people on your team and like off duty
1: hours get to spend time with people? So I did. I lived in the barracks while I was attached to the ship. So there was a lot of like, You know, after work, everyone would hang out, you know, we would meet in a barracks room and, you know, watch the guys play video games. And us girls would just kind of sit there and talk, you know, so we did kind of form some camaraderie. But I think for me, at that time in my life, the way that I coped when I would get uncomfortable or I didn't quite know what I was doing is I would make myself small, I would shrink myself. So my go to was acting, honestly, dumb when I wasn't like, I'm, I'm a pretty smart girl, but I would purposefully act kind of like stupid, like kind of like dumb blonde. Cause I figured if I can portray myself like that, then people won't expect me to know much. So then I don't have to be wrong about anything. So I think at the time, everyone just kind of thought like this girl is kind of dumb. And so I think people had a hard time kind of connecting with me and in, not because I myself was hard to connect with, but the persona I was putting out there was hard to connect with. So it was kind of hard for me to like find a tribe, so to say, while I was attached to the ship, to no fault of my own.
0: And now, a word from our sponsor Are you a military member, veteran, or family member? Are you stuck on how to get started in real estate and investing? Worried about your lack of time, money, or experience? You're not alone. The opportunities for the typical military member to invest in stellar real estate opportunities are about as small as the chance of not being on duty on the weekend. No more. Introducing Mission First Capital, the first real estate fund created specifically for you, the military investor, and your family. Anyone can invest, and at low minimums. It is affordable, too. Deployments and workups are hard enough. Investing in your future doesn't have to be. Check out more at missionfirstcapital.co. Check out my interview with Alex Brashear's episode 110 to learn more about Mission First Capital. And now let's get back to the show. Yeah, that would be hard. And you're young and you're doing a job that you never expected to be doing and you're just trying to cope your way through it. And I think that's one of the hard parts about joining the military is you don't always know what to expect. And even if you do know what to expect, sometimes it's not even that. So I don't think you can really prepare. And then being so young and not having like good mentors makes it really hard.
1: So what would you say the next big thing that happened in your career was? Yeah. So eventually I would say I was I was on the ship for about six months. We were still in dry dock and I met a guy. We connected really well. He was on the ship as well. We got into a relationship and I wound up getting pregnant, which for people in the military, no, but if you're not in the military, that's like the biggest no-no that you could ever. It's like committing murder if you get pregnant in the military as a female. So I got pregnant and right away, it was, I was shunned. Nobody would talk to me. You know, I was called a slut. You know, every name you can think of, that's what I was. I remember she's still one of my very best friends to this day, but I'll never forget um, one of my best friends on the ship sat there and um, I ran into her once the news came out and she stood there with her arms crossed and she shook her head at me and she's like, I cannot believe you would do that. Like, I cannot believe you would get pregnant. And I remember my chief at the time who that'd be like equivalent to, it was an E7. So like your boss in civilian world, Um, my chief at the time, you know, cornered me in a corner and just undressed me up and down. I mean, just chewed me out. So, but I did stay on the ship until I was 20 weeks pregnant to the day. And then I got transferred off the ship onto the base that we were attached to, which was Naval Base Kitsap in Bremerton, Washington. I was excited to get off the ship, not because I was really actually looking forward to deploying on a ship. So I was disappointed that I was detaching off of a ship, but I was excited in the sense of, I get to start fresh. Like I get to be around people and reprove myself in a new environment. I'm not going to dumb myself down this time. I'm going to just be myself through and through. You know, it's kind of like a clean slate. I learned a lot off the ship. I learned a lot of what to do and like what not to do. And um, so I was pretty, pretty excited to detach from the ship, leave that behind and report to the base. And so I remember, I'll never forget, I, uh, the, the morning where I was supposed to report to the base, I made sure I was like in regs. I just, I spent so much time getting ready and, you know, looking as professional as I could. And my ironed uniform was nice and crisp. And I got there and I checked into admin and there was a male chief at the check-in. And it's like, hi, you know, at the time, my name is Hasenwinkle. I'm, you know, I'm Seaman Hasenwinkel. I'm here to report for duty. Here's my orders. And he goes, oh, you're Seaman Hasenwinkel. And I said, yeah, I am. And he goes, okay, well, you were supposed to work in the parking division. But judging by the looks of you, I'm going to go upstairs and talk to the command master chief and see if he wants you to be his executive assistant. So you need to just wait here. So I was like, okay. Like, and that sounded like so nerve wracking because a command master chief, that's like an E9 and he's the command master chief of the whole base. So I was like, what have I got myself into? Oh my goodness. So I stood down there and then he comes back down after a little while and he's like, the command master chief wants to meet you. So I said, okay, so I go up there, I meet the command master chief, you know, he looks at me, kind of looks over my paperwork, and he's like, yep, you're hired, you're not going to go to parking anymore, you're going to be my executive assistant. So I said, okay, so that was my new job. I was the executive assistant to the command master chief of Naval Base Kitsip. And what was your rank when you did that? I was an E3, a baby. (laughs) It was a huge job for a little seaman who'd done no yeoman work at all yet because I had done hard labor on the ship. Yeah, that's crazy. So what was that job like? At the beginning, it was such a big learning opportunity. I mean, my desk was actually in the command suite, which is like, you know, the most glorified place of the base is the command suite because the XO, the CEO and the CMC all sit in there. And my office is right outside of the CMC's desk. And so you know, I ran all of his schedules, answered the phones, looked over awards, wrote speeches. You know, I I kind of did it all. And I got to learn from a really, really great Master Chief. His name was Master um, Chief Arnie. He was just caring and excellent and held me to such a high standard to where I really kind of got things down pat. And I was kind of his shadow. So like anywhere he went, I was, you know, I drove the government car everywhere, running him, you know, running him around to wherever he needed to go. So at first the job was great. However, you're secluded. So most of the time when you're, you're attached to a division and you have, you know, other sailors that you're working with, just like I had on the ship. But in this job, you know, I was up there by myself. I'm a sailor up there by myself. Later on, I had an additional girl up there that came to work up there as well. But at first, it was just me. And so it was lonely. And then the other sailors have their own opinions of you because you have like the golden job, you know, the golden sailor, and you slept your way to the top. And, you know, so it was kind of a lonely job. You know, I went went to work and went home and I, I didn't have a lot of friends at first. But I was lucky because I ended up picking up some collateral duties. Like I became the fitness enhancement program coordinator with a couple of other girls, which is where I met like my core group of girls part of making the women's symposium. So I actually founded with a couple of other, my girlfriends, the women's symposium. So I got on different committees to like meet friends and meet a group of people that didn't judge me for a job. I didn't choose <laughs> that got chose for me. So that was nice. So at first it was a wonderful, wonderful job to have. And then Master Chief Farney got orders for a different billet in Japan and it was a great opportunity for him but he would have to leave earlier than his orders typically would be so it left a gap in the billet for our command master chief so he took the orders and the XO and CO decided that we would have a senior chief come and fill the billet temporarily while we waited for the new command master chief to take over
0: And you said you moved when you were 20 weeks pregnant. So were you still
1: pregnant when all that happened? Yes. And I was a determined pregnant girl. Like you can like, when you're pregnant in the military, you can do like tennis shoes where like you can ask permission and you can wear tennis shoes with your uniform. And I was like, I'm not going to be one of those girls. Not that there's anything wrong with it. But you know, that perfectionism came out. And I was like, I'm wearing boots the whole time. You know, (laughs) all of the things. And so I was pregnant and I was like, you know, determined to work until I had a baby on the floor in the command suite. Just still trying to prove myself, pretty much.
0: Yeah. So how
1: long was he there before he left early? So he left early when I was about six months pregnant. He left. And then senior chief came in and took over the billet while we waited for the new master chief, which we knew was going to be about a year. And by this time, I had another girl up there who was a second class. So we were up there working together because the workload was just so great. They're like, we're just going to stick another girl up here so you guys can kind of share the role. So senior chief reported and right away, like I had seen him around. He had been up in the command suite because he had like filled in sometimes for Master Chief Farney if like he was out or took leave or whatever. So I knew him. He knew me we had a very great working relationship. However, he was a big jokester. I mean, he would come in and pass by my desk and, you know, Hey, babe, how's your day? You know, or, Hey, you know, your ass looks nice in that uniform today. You know, like kind of comments like that, that would make you feel super uncomfortable. But then he would laugh it off like just a joke, you know, like, ha 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 ha. And then, you know, go in his office. And so I I remember, you know, okay, whatever. They're just jokes. I'm, I'm 20 years old at this point. I'm trying to make it in the military. So it's not the first time that I've had inappropriate jokes happen or anything else. So whatever. But then the jokes started to get more handsy. Like he would come up and start like rubbing my shoulders. Like, Hey baby, how's your day? How's your day going? You know? And, and, you know, I'd brush him off like, Hey, it's okay. It's fine. Stop. You know, just stop. Ha ha. You know, kind of like asking him to stop, but not being like, stop. You know, I just laugh and be like, stop, don't do that. (laughs) Kind of cutesy. So this kind of like this behavior continued and I'm pregnant and getting more pregnant and getting more pregnant. And his behavior started going from jokes and rubbing, my shoulders to rubbing my leg now. Like I would go over to his desk to go over his schedule and he would sit there and rub his hand up and down, like the inner part of my thigh, like up to my privates just stopping right before he'd hit my private part. And I would back away, you know, and I'd be like, senior chief, don't do that. You know, and this, now I'm starting to get more firm because I'm like, no, you know, you're not going to touch me. Don't do that. Oh baby. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Sweetie. I'm kidding. So things like this would happen and I finally approached an E5 about it. So someone two pay grades higher than me and I'm like, hey, when I'm up there, like senior chief is rubbing my thighs. He's rubbing my butt like he's calling me baby and like making inappropriate comments. Sometimes he spanks me like and she was like, welcome to being a woman in the military. And she's like, you're just going to have to suck it up. This is how it is. And so she had a talk with me just about how this is how women in the military are treated and that I have to grow thicker skin. And that was pretty much the gist of it, you know? So I said, okay, okay, you know, whatever. So I continued working. I'm still pregnant. And then things started to get from like sexual to, you know, slapping my butt, rubbing his hands on my thighs, all of that to one day... He had a meeting scheduled and I always got like his binders like ready for him and all of that. And I got his binder ready for him. Candidate, here's your meeting stuff. Everything's in there. You're good to go. He went to his meeting and I got a call from the meeting and he was furious and he's yelling at me. Apparently, I had forgotten a form that he needed and he looked like an idiot. He said in front of everyone and I need that form, you know, and I'm like, no, it's in there. I know I put it in there. You didn't put you get this down here, blah, blah, blah. So I reprint the form, I drive down there, he meets me in the parking lot. He shoves me against the car, has me pinned against the car and is yelling at me. Things like this just happened all the time. Like he would enter the office and just for fun, he would like come up to me, grab my arm and twist it behind my back to where like, you know, your like arms twisted and you can't move. And he'd be like, do you like it like this, baby? Do you like it rough? Do you like it rough? You know, like, and then I would like tap out. I'd be like on the ground and I'm like, stop, stop. It hurts trying to tap out. And he would like hold it and then finally let go. So like, it was just this type of toxic work environment. And then luckily my daughter, she came like on her due date. Like I worked up until the day before I gave birth. So I welcomed the break from him. And then when I returned back from work, he pulled me in his office and said, the chief's mess and I, we have a bet of who can get a picture of you topless first. It's not going to be you. Like, I'm not going to do that. He's like, oh, but baby, you look so good after maternity leave. Like, you know, I'm like, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. So I pulled a chief aside this time in E7. Yeah. And I was like, hey, this is what's going on. And, you know, I explained everything, a to, you know, from A to Z. And, you know, it happened while I was pregnant and now it's happening, you know, postpartum. Like when I'm first coming back to work, it's not getting any better. And he's like, I'll talk to him. I'll talk to him. It's okay. I'll talk to him. Well, he talked to him. And senior chief got pissed at me. I mean, he was so mad at me. And it wasn't long after that where he pulled me into his office and he was like, I want to go over my schedule. You know, I don't know. He needed some mundane thing. So I'm in his office. And then he just randomly out of nowhere, like took me, threw me on his desk, spread my legs open and like had me pinned down with his like hands on me and was like humping me, but we were clothed. And he was like, like, like basically gesturing sex without having our clothes off. And I immediately, you know, I was, you know, get off me, get off me. I'm trying to push him off me, push him off me. He gets off me. I run out of his office and I tell my counterpart, I'm like, I can't believe what senior chief just did to me. Like it's a whole new low. I told her what happened and she consoled me. She's like, I'm so sorry. you know. And then it was not very long after um, I ran downstairs because we were upstairs. I ran downstairs to grab a vacuum one day and the second class who I was friends with just happened to be passing by. He's like, Hey, Hey Haas. They called me Haas. Hey Haas, how's your day going? And I just said, you know, senior chief slaps my ass one more time. I'm going to just lose it on him. Like everyone thinks that it's such a glorified job up there, but really the whole time, like we're getting sexually assaulted every day and this is how we work and I can't take it anymore. And so I'm just, for me, it had become such a normal environment. And I had told two people who had just been like, deal with it. That when I was saying this to the second class, It didn't even seem like abnormal. Like it didn't even seem like something was wrong with what I was even saying. Like it was just a vent session. Like I'm just venting to you. And sure enough, I had vented to him. And then I said, you know what? I better get back upstairs to vacuum before senior chief gets back. Like, thanks for the vent session. And he's like, Haas, I'm here if you need me at all. Like, let me know. I'm here if you need anything. And I was like, absolutely. Thank you. Didn't even give it a second thought. And then like an hour later... The admin chief, the administration chief came up and he's like, hey, Haas, I need to talk to you. So I'm like, oh, great. What happened now? You know? He's like, come with me. So he takes me into a secluded office. His first question to me was, how many times has senior chief touched you? And I was like, what are you talking about? And he's like, how many times has senior chief inappropriately touched you? I think he actually asked, how many times has he slapped your ass? And I was like you know, cause I had already reported so many times and I got senior chief. It got me in trouble last time it got to him. So I was like, chief, you don't know what you're talking about. I need to get back to work. And I got up to go leave. Like, and he was like, ha sit down right now. So I turned around and I sit down and he's like, how many times? And then I was like, you know, I told him the story and um, we got, we told all the department head and then the sapper, the sexual assault response They got called in. That's when they took me down to JAG. I reported it and then the investigation started. So that was kind of how that all happened.
0: Yeah, and you went to a lot of details in the book. And just in case people missed it when... When the second chief you talked to talked to the other chief, the senior chief, he didn't he bring you into the office and tell you like, I've been reported so many times, like there's nothing you can do, which is why when the other chief tried to talk to you, we're like, I'm not, there's nothing that can be done.
1: I'm not going to get in trouble again. That's exactly it. Yes. Like after the chief had talked to senior chief and said like, you know, Haas is saying that you're, you're sexually assaulting her at work. He pulled me into his office and he had said, he said, do you know how many women have reported me for sexual assault? And I said, no, senior chief. And he's like, many. Do you know where it's gone? No, absolutely nowhere. You know, like basically warning me, like, don't even try this. So many have tried it and I'm still here. And that's what he said. I'm still here.
0: Yeah, which is, it's so hard. And it just shows the systemic problem within the military was sexual assault, where you reported it to someone. And I think the person who was talking to the senior chief like, actually thought he was doing something helpful because he was like, I'll talk to him. He's not going to do it. I'll just be like, she doesn't like that. You shouldn't do it. And instead, he made it worse and it didn't go away. And the fact that he didn't like check with you after he talked to him to see if it got better. It was just like, oh, I'll talk to him. It'll be fine. And that's just a really big problem.
1: Exactly. And I like how you touched on, like, you know, this, how it's a systemic issue. And I think, too, it's so important for people to realize that, you know, when I talk to, like, civilians who've never been in the military about this, even some military people, you know, it's like, why didn't you just, you know, switch jobs? Why didn't you just ask to get transferred? And it's like, people don't realize, like, we're in a contract that we signed, for Uncle Sam, to the military for four years, up to including our lives, you know, and there is no, I don't like this job. I think I'm just going to switch departments or I don't like my boss. So I think I'll quit and go find a new job. You're stuck. And I think that's where sexual assault gets lost sometimes because I think people just think you had a choice. You could have removed yourself from that situation. And it's, just so to the contrary and trying to explain that to people is very difficult. So I like that you brought that up.
0: It's so true. Yeah. Reading your book is not an easy thing to do, but it's, it brings up so many emotions and and stories that need to be told. And I feel like, We spent a lot of time on sexual assault and there's a bunch more to your story, but I'm really glad we dug deep into it because it's something that needs to be talked about and women need to be aware of that and that if they are facing something like that, there are people you can reach out to. You can email me and I can help get connected with the right people because sometimes you have to go outside of the chain of command and get an advocate who can help you because And sometimes you don't know because even though there's sexual assault training, it doesn't get you to the right person. So if you're struggling with something like that, make sure to send an email to me or find me on social media and I can help you. And we're going to keep going with your story. So we mentioned that your daughter was born and I know you had some medical complications after
1: she was born that you talked about in the book. Do you want to talk about that? I think it's a great thing to talk about because, Um, I think another thing that happens in the military that is a systemic issue is women aren't believed and it's not just sexual assault. So after I gave birth to my daughter, I had, like I said, she was born on her due date. I worked up until the day before I had her. I went through a very long labor with no pain medication, not by choice. So I went in when I was nine centimeters dilated and I labored for 13 hours and um, after I had her, I hemorrhaged a lot, but they got it under control in the hospital, got discharged. You're good, mom. Everything's fine. You're good to go. Go home. And I went home and I was bleeding a lot. I mean, the bleeding was just to me abnormal, but I was first time mom. So I went to the checkup with, you know, the nurse at, on the labor and delivery floor. And I told her, you know, hey, I'm bleeding a lot. A lot, like more than a dime size, because I always say if it's more than a dime, you know, like it's like quarter dollar bill size, like this isn't normal. She's like, you're fine, honey. Bleeding is normal. Bleeding is normal. So I went back for my second checkup. And so this was two weeks after my daughter born. And I told her, I said, the bleeding is still there. It's not getting better. It's a lot. And she told me, sweetie, I know you're trying to get out of duty going back. To work, I know you're trying to get out of duty, but it's not going to work with me. You're fine. You're going to do a normal maternity leave, which is six weeks. I'm like, I'm not trying to get out of going back. Like I still have four whole weeks. Like, I'm just bleeding a lot. No, sweetie. You know, so she had it set in her heart. She's like, we get this all the time where women come in and want to complain a complications. So they get a prolonged maternity leave. You're okay. You're fine. So I said, okay. So I flew home for my maternity leave to Arizona, which is where I'm from. And that's where my family was and where I could get support. Because my baby's father was deployed on a ship. And I landed. And then it was like the night I landed. That night I had family over just like to come meet my baby. And I ended up like passing like the size, a clot the size of like cranberry sauce, like looked exactly like a can of it and i went in and they're like you i had something like it was like close to 50% of my placenta left in me and that's why i was bleeding and so i went through all in all it was 11 dnc's to just try to clean out my uterus to you know get it get everything out but by that time they had waited so long i was so infected from all that bleeding and from the placenta staying in me that all my lady parts were just destroyed. And I ended up having, I was 21 years old and I got a hysterectomy to include like my ovaries, my fallopian tubes, uterus, cervix, everything was gone. And so I say that to say that, again, there's this stigma that, a hey, you get pregnant and you're the worst thing that happened to the military and you're a slut. And then you have your child at these, military medical facilities, and you complain that, hey, I'm bleeding. And instead of saying, well, let's take a look at your bleeding or let me do an exam. It's you're just trying to prolong your maternity leave. You know, you're trying to get out of duty. And again, it's, it's this issue, a constant perpetual cycle of females in the military not being believed and being made to like, we're trying to get out of X, Y, or Z, and that process of thinking literally cost me all of my woman parts. I mean, I'm postmenopausal at 31. You know what I mean? Like it's just this toxic way of thinking is costing females sexual assaults, medical emergencies and injuries that are lifelong and their lives. And it's and it's awful.
0: Yeah, reading that part of your story was I mean, it was so sad because if she had just done the exam, which would have told her if you were telling the truth or lying and like it wouldn't have taken that much time, then she would know that there was nothing wrong and you wouldn't have had to go through the infection and, and not be, you can't have kids, like everything. And it's just, it's so sad that it just was like, I'm just assuming that you're lying and I'm not going to do anything about it. And it's really sad.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: So... What was it like being a single mom on active duty once like you got your medical stuff and then and then the chief was finally gone and and you were able to
1: keep going with your military career? So kind of backing up, you know, I was pregnant, I had my daughter, my daughter's father was deployed, we didn't work out but remained friends. But he was out of the picture. You know, he was deployed, stationed elsewhere, so I was a single mom and I was not looking for anything, and I was actually right in the middle of my sexual assault trial because I took Senior Chief to um, court martial. So I was in the middle of trial, you know, in the middle of everyone choosing sides on base of you know whether or not you know I'm believable or not. And I remember one day I reported to work, and I went up and I was going to enter my office building in this like super cute second class like opened the door for me, and I was like morning petty officer. And I just passed right by him, went up the stairs, but in my head, I'm like, Oh my gosh, he was cute. And I was like halfway up the stairs. And I turn around and he was like, still staring at me, like at the bottom of the stairwell. I'm like, <laughs> so I just like quickly go up and, you know, finish. And, and and so a couple days later, my, one of my very best friends to this day, she's one of my sisters in arms, Amy Abbott. She was like, Hey, there's this new master at arms that reported. He's asking about the girl that works upstairs. And she's like, and I tell him like, oh, that's Hodge. She's one of my best friends. And he wants your number. Like he wants to take you on a date. And I was like, girl, I am a single mom (laughs) with an infant. I'm in the middle of a sexual assault trial. Like I'm not looking for anything, but she's like, come on. You know, so we checked out his Facebook and I was like, Okay, fine. Like, he deserves a date. So we actually, we ended up going on a date. And that night, uh, we stood in the rain. It was raining and we were like saying goodbye, but like we couldn't stop saying goodbye. So we'd say bye and then like start talking about something else and then say goodbye again. And so we hugged and we had our first kiss. And then I was walking away and he was like, hey, Allie. And I turned around. And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, I'm going to marry you one day. And I was like, okay. Like, yeah, okay. And so I just started laughing. But long story short, we worked out. And we got married March 3rd of 2012. We got married and um, he was a canine handler, Master Arms canine handler on at Naval Base Kitsap. And he got orders to deploy to Afghanistan, Kanjwa, Afghanistan. And so we just did like a courthouse wedding on March 3rd with plans of doing like a big wedding after he got home from deployment. But between then, I went to court martial and I won my case. So senior chief was found guilty. And dishonorably just charged and reduced to E1. And he's a registered sex offender now. So my husband, his name is Sean. Sean was able to be there for that before he deployed. He got to see me win that case and that was huge for us. And then Sean came out here to Arizona, to Yuma, to the Yuma premium grounds to, um, for him and Sakari to do training. So Addison and I, which is our daughter, Addison and I got to see him in Yuma and see him in action and. Say bye to him. And then he deployed with our friend Brodsky, deployed with him. And he was actually taking the place of his best friend and roommate, Christopher Roybal. So he went to go take his place in Afghanistan and Roybal got to come home. So um, Sean left for Afghanistan and landed in country on May 1st. And then Sean's first mission outside of the wire was May 24th of 2012. And um, Sean was killed in action on May 30th of 2012. So landed May 1st, killed on May 30th. So being a single mom, the first time around, I had it together. I had a system. I was doing great juggling work life and mom life. Second time around was uh, Sean's death. And that was a little bit trickier just because uh, I was grieving Sean. And just the way that happened, you know, because you think your spouse is killed in Afghanistan. So you think like white caravan comes to your house and you look out the window and you're like, Oh my God, you know, something happened. You prep yourself. They come to the door with the chaplain. You know, that's what you think of when you think of your spouse getting hurt or killed overseas. And I actually, They didn't do any of that. They had me literally report to work like it was any other day. So I'm just like all chipper, like walking in my building. Everyone knew I didn't. You know, so I walk in and and everyone's staring at me. And I'm like, geez, people have a staring problem today. (laughs) You know, and I walk upstairs. I'm like, morning, Master Chief, like all happy. And, you know, he's like, hey, Haas, you need to just, you need to follow me to the CEO's office. And I'm like, okay thinking I did something wrong, which I was a great sailor, but I was just like, I must've done something. So I follow him and I'm like, what's going on? And he's like, you just need to come into the CEO's office with me. It's okay. And I was like, I grabbed his elbow and I was like, what is going on? And he's, and I was like, did I do something? Just tell me what I did. And he's like, you're going to be okay. Just follow me in there. So I go in there and he shut the door and then I, to my commanding officer, I'm like, good morning, sir. And he's like, go ahead go ahead and have a seat. And I went to go sit. And like, before I could even sit, I was like halfway sitting. He's like, uh, he just said, Sean is dead. That was it. Sean is dead. So that was pretty rough.
0: Yeah. And, and the book, you talked a little bit about how like they didn't really know what to do because you were active duty and they were like confused on like what your role was and like they should have treated you as a spouse because you are a spouse. And it kind of messed that all up. And like, there should have been a chaplain there. There should have been like a lot of things instead. They were like, we don't know what to do. And it was really painful and really hard. I mean, not that it wouldn't have been anyways, but it just made it even worse.
1: Yeah. You know, it was, and, and, you know, and I can sympathize with them now because it's been, you know, it's been eight years, but at You know, after they said, Sean is dead, I was falling, of course. And I'm like, what happened? What happened? There's no way he's dead. You know, I'm doing, you know, just freaking out like any widow would. And then afterwards, you know, the first thing you want to do is just, I just wanted to be left alone for one. Like I needed to wrap my head around what happened. And for two, I, I needed to be like in our house. Like I wanted to like grab one of his shirts and like cuddle in it and just be hysterical, you know? But instead, they like take me to my master chief's office. And I was informed at like 9 a.m. They had me in his office till like 6 p.m. And so I'm sitting in an office. My husband just died. I'm having to make phone calls between my family and his family to let them know what happened. I mean, his family had been informed, obviously, but calling to just kind of... Obviously, I'm his wife, so I'm going to call his parents. But I had to call my parents from the office, they're not letting me leave. In fact, they had someone go to my apartment for me and get me a change of clothes, like, so I could be comfortable. Like, I'm going to be comfortable. I mean, it was just, you know, and then I have like my friends, they they let like two of my friends come up and be with me. But outside of that, they had like, ma stand guard at the door. So they didn't let me leave base until my parents touched down at SeaTac. They sent a, a car to go get them. And then I was allowed to leave base, but I was stuck in an office. And again, you're bound by contract. You you have leadership that you have to listen to. So there is no like, hey, my husband just died. I'm gonna take an absence, a leave of absence, and I'm going home for the day. You can't do that. You know, so they're all trying to figure out well, what are we gonna do with her? Well, what about Dover? Do we let her go to Dover? What about Arlington? Do we let her take time off in between Dover and Arlington? You you know? So it was just this like back and forth of like, what do we do with her? So in between, like they let me leave and then we set up Dover. So I flew out to Dover the very next day with my command Master Chief. And then in between Dover and Arlington, his actual burial, like I would have to like call in and muster and then like sometimes show up but sometimes like so it was just not a normal grieving process by any stretch of the imagination and they were just learning kind of as they went and kind of just making up rules as we as we went it was just a very hard time
0: yeah that's really hard and i think a lot of people don't realize like how difficult the process is i think it's difficult for military spouses, but at least with military spouses, they kind of have a plan. And I, I know that sometimes there's flaws, but with military members who are military spouses it's like they act like we don't exist. And then when like something crazy happens, they're like, well, what do we do? And it's like, why don't we have a plan? There's lots of mill to mill couples. And this is something that people should prepare for and have a regulation for, but it's something that I guess isn't top priority because there's so few people that are affected by it. But when it happens, it would be really helpful for the leadership and for you as the person to, like, have a solid plan. I'm sorry that you had to go through that. And I'm sure that's still still grieving eight years later because, I mean, that's really hard.
1: Yeah. And in fact, I'm glad you brought that up because I actually had, after Sean died, I set up an interview with the Admiral of the PAC Northwest, and I spoke to him about needing. I advocated for tighter regulations around mill-to-mill, And what in the case of a KIA, when you are mill to mill, because there was literally no guidance on it. And because of their lack of planning, who suffers the widow or the widower does, you know, and and we're kind of the test dummy. And that's completely unacceptable. And so um, I did advocate for change there. And I hope I hope they took it to heart. And I hope nowadays there is something kind of set in stone that's a little bit more acceptable and humane. Yeah,
0: hopefully. I feel like we're running out of time. But luckily, Allie wrote all her story in a book. So let's talk a little bit about why you wrote the book. So
1: I wrote the book, for one, as like a healing uh, journey for me. I thought maybe getting everything in like on paper would help me. Writing it was actually very healing. Just kind of going through my experience so many years later And reflecting back on like the lessons learned and how each step brought me to where I am today was an incredible experience. But more so, I really wanted to write it for, in particular, women, but men too, who are going through similar struggles, similar situations, um, and kind of give them a hope that you do get through it. There is light at the end of the tunnel. And if you're treading water, keep treading because you eventually reach the shore just might take a little while. So really, it was just to provide some hope. It was to shed some light on the struggles in the military that are going on in the military and to just for for kind of like a healing process, you know, and um, I think for me, while I was going through everything that I went through, I felt so alone and through writing it, through connecting through other people and through reflecting on my lessons, I realized I was never alone. I had a whole tribe of people around me helping me each step of the way. And so I just wanted other women who are struggling now to know that they're not alone. And even just by reading my book, you can tell you're not because I'm right there with you. And together we can get through anything. And I think my book kind of helps prove that.
0: Yeah, it's true. And I didn't say the name. So I'm going to say it now. But it's flawed and still worthy. And I'll have a link to it in the show notes if you want to get a copy of it. But I really think the way that you just described it was so good. Because when I started the podcast, I felt the same way. I felt so alone as a woman veteran. And through talking to other women and hearing their stories, I was like, I'm not alone. I'm not the only one who feels this way. And that's your book. It's so authentic and open about your struggles that you really can connect with your experience, even if your experience isn't exactly the same, but you have the same worries. And like, unfortunately, there's always some degree of sexual harassment that military women face, I think. And so I could relate to part of your struggle just because you
1: are so open and
0: authentic about your experience.
1: Thank you so much. I appreciate that. That means a lot coming from you.
0: So there's more to her story. So you really should go get her book because we totally ran out of time. But I'm really glad that we got to talk about the things that we did cover. But I want us end the interview, like I always do, with what advice would you give
1: to women who are considering joining the military? So do it. Definitely go and join the military. It will change your life for sure. But I would say always, always maintain your moral high ground. There's going to be a lot of temptations out there. And As long as you maintain your moral high ground, you'll do great. The second one is stay authentic to yourself. Don't change yourself for anybody. And the third one would probably be if you see something, say something. I know that that sounds so cliche, but if you see someone getting assaulted or if you see behaviors that just don't seem right, say something, say something, say something because it could really, it changed the course of my career it saved me from god knows what my you know situation could have turned into had that sailor not said something after he had seen something and heard something so that that would be uh, my top 3 pieces of advice
0: yeah i think that say something is so important because sometimes we think oh i don't want to like interfere in someone's life but he saved you from a really hard situation that you just had given up and you couldn't save yourself so that's so important to speak up when you can and to to advocate for someone, especially someone who can't advocate for themselves. So that was really great advice. And thank you so much for being on the podcast. I really enjoy getting a chance to talk to you. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Listening to this week's episode of Women of the Military Podcast. Do you love all things Women of the Military Podcast? Become a subscriber so you never miss an episode and consider leaving a review. It really helps people find the podcast and helps the podcast to grow. Are you still listening? You could be a part of the mission of telling the stories of military women by joining me on Patreon at patreon.com/slash women of the military, or you can order my book, Women of the Military, on Amazon. Every dollar helps. to continue the work i am doing are you a business owner do you want to get your product or service in front of the women of the military podcast audience get in touch with the women of the military podcast team to learn more all the links on how you can support women of the military podcast are located in the show notes thanks again for listening and for your support